So the book that you have in your lap was written over a period of 1,600 years on three continents and in three languages. And yet we understand that it's not just a book about ancient history or philosophy. This is a spiritual book and every component has an important part in communicating the truth about God and His eternal plan. What you have in your lap is a collection of writings that covers hundreds of subjects, and yet those subjects all intersect and integrate with one another through different genres. The Bible can explain a spiritual truth using direct teaching, But in another area, it can describe that same spiritual truth using poetry. Or in another place, it will describe it by an event from redemptive history. Let me give you an example of what I mean. The Bible declares that God is a Savior. Isaiah 45, 21. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. So, we know that God is a Savior because that is a propositional truth given to us directly. But the Bible also demonstrates that truth in another way, in another place. For example, God delivers the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Or, God saves the Jews from extermination during the time of Esther. Or, God delivers Daniel from the lion's den. God is a Savior of His people, and it's the same truth communicated in different forms. Or, we know that God is holy. Moses writes in Exodus 15, Who is like You, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like You, majestic in holiness? But that is not all that is given to us to leave us to conceptualize what holiness might be. But there are other parts of Scripture that describe exactly what that means. Take, for example, the myriad of Old Testament laws about what is required to approach God. There is clean and there is unclean. Eat this Don't eat that. Wear this. Don't wear that. And if you do, you cannot approach God. There's a system of sacrifice. There is the blood atonement for sin. And all of a sudden, we have a more dynamic and more profound understanding of what holiness means. It means I can't just walk into the presence of God and expect everything's going to be okay. So the Bible doesn't just tell us about some spiritual reality, it shows us. We are told that as believers we are strangers in a foreign land. If you've been joined to Christ by faith, if you have experienced a new birth, this world is not your home, you are a foreigner and a stranger here in this place. But God also shows us what that looks like. Joseph in the book of Genesis, remaining faithful while in Egypt. Daniel and his friends in Babylon, enduring by faith in the midst of idolatry. 
The same is true when you go into the New Testament. Salvation is not only described through words and sentences and paragraphs, but it is also depicted for us. What does it look like? Well, we're told of a wayward son who squanders his father's estate, and then he encounters a famine, and he returns to his father surprisingly welcomed with open arms. Reconciliation. Or blind Bartimaeus, who not only regains his sight, but he's given eyes to see who Jesus truly is. Regeneration. Or a demon-possessed man who is in a danger to those around him, has an encounter with Jesus, and in the next scene he is dressed and in his right mind, and we recognize that's a picture of conversion. So all pictures of the brokenness of our condition and all examples of the transformation that takes place when there's an encounter with Jesus. So we have these historical narratives that add color to the didactic or the plain teachings of the Bible. Jesus said you must be born again. What on earth does that look like? Paul wrote that godly sorrow produces repentance. What's that? He says that every man in Christ is a new creation. How can these concepts be understood more clearly? It's because we have accounts like our text today in Luke 19 where God not only describes these things for us, He shows us what they look like. So I had... Uh, Richard, read Luke 19 already. I've divided the text into three simple parts. It's the easiest outline I've ever found in a sermon. First, the sinner, and then the Savior, and then salvation. It's just almost like it was designed that way. So point number one, the sinner. Open, or if you've got your Bible open, verse 1 of chapter 19. The sinner. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem, and he enters the very populated city of Jericho. And by this time in the Gospels, as he's going to the cross to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world, uh, Luke highlights the crowds. There are great crowds following Jesus, and within this mass of humanity, there is one man in particular that Luke chooses to focus on. Now, we can't know everything about this man from this text, but let me point out a few things that we can know. First, we know his name. His name is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus means righteous one or pure one. 
Now, this would be a name you give to your child with the high hopes that they are going to follow after God. I mean, if you named your child Holy One or Righteous One, you can imagine that your expectations for this child are great and that you hope that they will live a God-honoring life. But we discover it's an ironic name based on the next thing we learn about this man, and that is his occupation. It says that he is a chief tax collector. Now, this is the sixth time in Luke that, we have encou- that Jesus has encountered a tax collector. Sixth time. So frequent is this that This makes me think that God wants to drive home some kind of point by Jesus encountering these people over and over again. But this is the first time we find a chief tax collector, so I have to explain the difference. We've already learned that being a tax collector was a great offense to the Jews. These were Jewish men who were serving the Roman government by collecting taxes from their own people. And they were notorious for misusing their authority. So they had the Romans at their back. They, had, they came to the people with Roman authority, and yet the Romans d- did not have much oversight into how these taxes were gathered. In fact, the Romans didn't really care so long as they got their share. So, because of this, these men could tax the people anything they wanted, and because they were surrounded by the Roman authority, they were sort of cloaked in Rome, they could do nothing about it. So, if they ran into a man at a tax collecting station or a booth, they could tax him for the commodities that he was taking from one city to another. But they could also tax him for the wagon that carried the commodities. And they could also tax him for the wheels on the wagon. You see what kind of corruption that might breed. So tax collectors became rich because they paid Rome a portion of what the Romans required and they kept the rest for themselves. We've seen that time and time again. But Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, which means he is over a region of other tax collectors, and so whatever profit they would make, he would make a portion of that. So if you're familiar with multi-level marketing schemes, you have one person at the top, and they've got people under them, and people under them, and people under them, and the guy at the top gets a little bit of all of their work, all of their income. So that's what it means to be the chief. Okay? So we know his name. We know his occupation. And then Luke tells us, no surprise, of his wealth. He was rich. Now, this is to be implied that it, he is rich from ill-gotten gain, as I just described. Tax collecting on its own was just very menial work. You were not going to get rich doing it unless you were a corrupt man. And most of them were. So, 
this man Zacchaeus was getting rich off of his fellow Jews by working in this role of chief, chief tax collector. And yet we also recognize that the job itself was not a sin. How do we know this? Well, Jesus never condemned it as a sin. John the Baptist never condemned it as a sin. In fact, if you remember when John was baptizing people in the Jordan and all these people came out to be baptized and they were asking, what must we do to repent? It says in Luke 3.12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. So John never said, well, you need to repent of being a tax collector. Jesus never called it a sin. The sin was extortion. The sin was robbing the people of their money for taxes that were not required. So the idea here is that Zacchaeus is rich and only for one reason. He is taking money does not belong to him. He is a thief. So we know his name. We know his occupation. We know his wealth. And Luke adds another detail about this man here. His size. He is a small man. Verse 3 says, He was seeking to see who Jesus was, But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with being short, but it does present some kind of disadvantage if you are trying to work your way through a crowd. But before we see the solution to this man's dilemma, let me speculate a little bit about this man. So I'm reading between the lines here. This is not found in the text, but I've read this enough times to where I think I know what's going on. I bet Zacchaeus, being a short man, has what we would call today a Napoleon complex. You heard of the Napoleon complex? This is where short people try to make up for their horizontal inadequacy, uh, vertical inadequacy, I should say. And so they are domineering and they are controlling and they love positions of power. And so perhaps Zacchaeus got into tax collecting in the first place because he wanted to have authority over others to compensate for his feelings of inferiority. This is me speculating. Maybe he thought wealth and power would give him the confidence and the security that he was searching for. Maybe he was teased as a child, teased as an adult. He was tired of not measuring up, literally. And so this is how he was going to strike back. And this leads me to speculate even further, and I'm reading between the lines here, but I would imagine such a man would have a rather empty existence. Again, this is pure speculation. But I have a feeling 
that Zacchaeus and his height is being brought up here not just because he ends up climbing a tree to see Jesus, but I think there's a psychological profile we can build here about this man and that he is an empty man. He has pursued wealth. He has pursued success. He has become successful. He's gotten all the money that he ever wanted, and yet he finds it does not satisfy that hole that is deep within his heart. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So I think this is a man who is desperate and he's lonely and he's lost. And it is this poor spiritual condition that makes him eager to see who Jesus is. So look at verse 3 again. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Zacchaeus would be a man who has no community. We've talked about tax collectors before. Their testimony was not allowed in a court of law. They were not allowed to enter the temple. They were not to go to the local synagogue. They were not to partake in any of the gatherings or any of the Jewish festivals throughout the year. They were not welcome in in the home of any of the Jews. And certainly, this would take a toll on a man. Perhaps he has a family, we are not told, but if he does, he also carries the additional weight of guilt because they too would be ostracized from Jewish society. In fact, his only relationships would be with the same kinds of people. And so that's why you see again and again in the Gospels, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. That's all they had to hang out with. The riffraff of Israel. Now I'm speculating still. There's a lot of speculation here. But perhaps Zacchaeus heard through the grapevine that Jesus was the type of spiritual leader who would actually spend time with tax collectors. I mean, is it that far-fetched to think that maybe he heard from his other tax collector friends that there is a rabbi in Israel, a miracle worker, who does not throw stones at the tax collectors, who does not call them names, who does not cross the street to the other side when they see them coming, but he actually welcomes them and sits and eats with them. And Zacchaeus hears, this teacher is coming to Jericho and I've got to see this for myself. I must find out if the things that I've heard are true. And so what does Zacchaeus do? In his 
desperation. He humbles himself. He knows he can't see the Jesus over the crowds. And I imagine for a man like him, it would be rather dangerous to try to maneuver through the crowds. So he does what would be considered humiliating in Jewish culture for a rich man to do. Two things actually in verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, I can picture Zacchaeus up there, and I imagine the only other people in those trees are children. They had some very odd traditions in Israel and things that were respectful and things that were embarrassing and humiliating. And I told you this in my sermon on the prodigal son, but when the father pulled up his garments and ran to his son, that would have been considered uncouth. A a, a man would not want to expose his legs. It was considered embarrassing. So, Zacchaeus not only runs, but he climbs a tree. And so there he is, this little man who apparently has disregarded any kind of social norms concerning himself. I mean, he's hated anyway. Who cares what the people think? And he runs and he climbs to see Jesus. I think it's because he has a thirst that he's looking to be quenched. He has a hole in his heart he's looking to be filled. He wants acceptance. He wants, um, he wants to have some kind of self-respect. And here is this religious teacher passing through the land and he has to see it for himself. So, that's the first point. We meet Zacchaeus, a sinner. Secondly, we see a Savior. Verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. Now this is fascinating indeed. With a large crowd around him, so much that this man has to climb a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus, Jesus walks directly up to him, right to the place where he's at, and he calls him by name. Now, how does he know his name? And how does he know his name and not know what a despicable man this is? Well, the fact of the matter is, Jesus knows all of those things. Jesus knows that he is a thief and a liar and a coward and a betrayer of his own people. Jesus stopped under the tree that day and He knew everything there was to know about Zacchaeus. And yet He still went to him and He still called him by name and He still loved him. Out of all the people that day, out of all the church-going people, out of all the religious leaders who were present there, He goes to that one man. 
It reminds me of the time that Jesus had a meal with the with a Pharisee back in Luke 7. And this adulterous woman came in and she breaks the oil and puts it on his hair and she's weeping on his feet and wiping his feet with her tears and her hair. And the Pharisee says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And what do we discover in that text? He knew. He knew. And that's why He came. These are the people for whom He came. That's why He's the Savior. And when He walks up to Zacchaeus out of that huge crowd, He knows exactly Zacchaeus' issues. Now, I think that's pretty affirming for Zacchaeus that whoever this teacher is, he is unlike anyone he has ever met. If Zacchaeus was wondering if this man is some kind of special teacher, I believe that it has been confirmed for him now. Now, surely those who were witnessing this would say, why him? Out of all of those in the crowd, out of all of those pressing around, Jesus walks up to this tax collector? Why? Now, we're not given specifics into the divine mind here. We don't know the plan of God. But Jesus says with certainty to this man, I must stay at your house today. I must Now this reminds me of the encounter Jesus had with the woman at the well. And it's said in John 4.4 that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And yet we know that the Jews didn't pass through Samaria. They avoided Samaria. But Jesus didn't avoid Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. And it's the very same word used in both texts. I must and he had is the same Greek word. In fact, the King James tries to maintain the urgency of that word and it clumsily says, and he must needs go through Samaria. So this is a picture of divine necessity. I must, I have to, it is necessary... And in the case with the woman at the well, she is converted. You remember, she runs to the townspeople and says, I want you to meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. He knows it all. It's the same kind of situation. It's a divine appointment. And the remarkable thing from the woman at the well and the remarkable thing from the account of Zacchaeus is how amazing grace really is. I mean, if He knows everything about you, He knows what you think, He knows what you say, He knows what you desire, He knows what you've done. 
There are no secrets from Him. And the marvelous thing, the surprising thing, the astonishing thing is that He loves you still. I mean, what? And in Luke 19, Jesus is not moving through the crowd looking for really good religious people to spend the afternoon with. And boy, is he going to be surprised when he finds out what Zacchaeus is really like. No. This is a matter of divine purpose. So I talked earlier about how the Bible tells us theology, but then it also shows us this is what theologians call the effectual call. This is, this is the term that they would use to describe this. The effectual call. So there is a calling from God that saves. There's an outward call to all people called the general call. But then there is the effectual call, which is an inward call, which is a salvation kind of call. You see this when Jesus calls the disciples and they follow Him. You see this with Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. You see this kind of call where Jesus calls to them and that produces inward change. Zacchaeus was not just some random guy that Jesus found. Oh, look, I know who this guy is. Ephesians 1 tells us there's this doctrine called election and that God has predetermined a people that He is going to covenant with and He is going to save and they are His elect and chosen people. And there is a point in time when the Holy Spirit comes and opens their eyes to the glory of Jesus. All those doctrines, effectual call and election and irresistible grace, those are all discovered in this narrative. Now, from a human level, there might be someone who's searching for God. There might be someone out of the blue who all of a sudden has a desire to read the Bible, a desire to pray. It just kind of came out of nowhere. There may be certain events that humble a person, that breaks up the hardness of their heart, that causes them to rethink their purpose in this universe. But even that is the work of God. God never calls people to Himself kicking and screaming against their will. Rather, He removes their heart of stone And He gives them a new heart with new desires. And this is called regeneration. And regeneration produces faith. So Zacchaeus is looking and searching to see who Jesus is. And yet at the same time, God is drawing Zacchaeus to Himself. And when Jesus enters Jericho, there's a divine appointment that Jesus must keep and it's going to His house. Elsewhere, Jesus taught this. John 6.44 
No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus said to His disciples, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So why must Jesus spend the day with Zacchaeus? Because it was a divine appointment. It was because of election. This was God's choice. This was God's pleasure. And Jesus wants to transform His life from the inside out. Because He is a Savior. Jesus doesn't care about His reputation. Jesus doesn't care what people might say. Jesus doesn't care what social taboos He would be breaking by going to the home of such a sinner, but he is concerned about Zacchaeus. So we see a sinner, we see a Savior, and thirdly, we see salvation. Verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's interesting to compare how various kinds of people react when they encounter Jesus in the Gospels you would expect the holy men of Israel, the religious elite of the nation, the spiritual leaders to be the ones who are eager to be with Jesus, and yet they refuse Him. And you see, rather, those who live in darkness, those who are socially and morally unacceptable, those who have been outcasts from society, they, time and again, are the ones who welcome Him gladly. And this is the case with Zacchaeus. Verse 6 says, He hurried and came down and received Him joyfully. Jesus wants to spend the day with this man whom others ignore and reject and despise. And the response to that invitation is one of joy. Did you know that your joy in Jesus is in direct relation to how unworthy you see yourself to be? 
I'm going to say that again. Your sense of joy in Jesus is in direct relation to how unworthy you see yourself to be. And the more you see yourself in truth, the more wonderful it is that Jesus wants to be with you. And what's astonishing to me is when people say they have received Him, they have invited Him in, and yet they act like being with Christ is some kind of burden. And when you ask them about their relationship with Christ, there's kind of an apathetic attitude. You say, hey man, how are things going at church? Man, you know, I haven't been in a long time. I mean, Sundays, that's really my only day to sleep in. It's kind of my only day I can go golfing. You say, well, have you been reading your Bible? No, you know, I know I should. Do you pray? Yeah, I mean, I always pray before I eat. But then you ask them about their favorite football team and they light up like a Christmas tree. Oh man, have you got an hour? Let me tell you all about them. And here's the statistics and here's the games and here's the plays. And you think, what is going on here? Inviting Christ into your life is anything but boring. There is a zeal and enthusiasm that results from spending time with Him. Now, we are fallen people and we are in a fallen world and I wish I could say that I just had joy in Jesus all the time. I wish I could say that. My faith fluctuates. I mean, I'm driven all about just like you are. We have days that are good. We have days that are bad. But if you have never had joy in fellowship with Jesus, then something is seriously wrong. If you are 10,000 times more excited about a new electronic toy you just got or your favorite artist CD or whatever than spending time with God, then something is seriously wrong. And maybe what's wrong is you don't really see your need. And so your joy with Jesus, if there is any there, it's so terribly small because you don't see how desperate you really are. Or maybe it's true that He's never really been welcome in your home. Maybe you like the idea of Jesus, you like the idea of some kind of afterlife, but really, He's never really entered in. You've never really engaged with Him. You've never spent time with Him. You've never had that meal with Him, so to speak. There should be a reaction to welcoming Christ and dining with Christ and fellowship with Christ and that is that you receive Him with joy. Well, it's no surprise that the people who are witnessing 
this exchange, are not happy with this. There's a contrast between the joy that Zacchaeus has and the crowd. Verse 7, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, for the sake of time, I won't spend, I'm not going to camp here um, other than to point out the obvious, and that is that there are people who do not believe that everyone is a candidate for heaven. There are people who believe that you are too far gone, and if you have crossed a particular line, there is no hope for you. And they see themselves in a special, separate category. And we talked about that in my fourth sermon with Jonah. So I'm going to move along from there. But between verse 7 and verse 8, something has happened here. And I wish we were given a little more detail about their time together. But Luke is very brief. And all we see are the results. Verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, oh, how I wish there was more there. (laughs) I mean, we don't know what they had for lunch. We don't know what they talked about. We don't know if Jesus brought up the tax collecting scheme. We don't know if Jesus spoke to him about his sin. We can assume some of those conversations took place or maybe just the very presence of Jesus who was loving this man caused him to submit and repent. But one thing we know, the result of their encounter is that Zacchaeus is a changed man. The rich man who loves money all of a sudden loves something more. And this is seen in that he makes a public promise that he will make restitution for his past crimes. I mean, maybe just Jesus being in his home and talking about the kingdom And Zacchaeus is looking around and he sees all of his nice furniture and the big flat screen TV and he sees all of the modern comforts and he knows that all of it was based on his thievery. And being in the presence of holiness, he was convicted of his sin. We don't know. But one thing we know He went from loving money to loving God. And that is not faked. At some point in this meeting, this crooked man who had received Jesus joyfully decides he is going to Repent. So repentance is a biblical doctrine. We're described what repentance is in the Bible. And here we are shown it. What does he say? I'm going to take half of my wealth 
cut it right down the middle, 50%, I'm going to give it to the poor. And then the 50% that's left, if I have defrauded anyone, and I bet there are lots of people who would line up for that, I'm going to pay them back four times what I took. The Old Testament law required a 20% payment on top of what was stolen. So if you stole $100 for someone and you had to pay them back, you paid them $120. That was Old Testament law. Zacchaeus says, I will pay four times the amount. Why? Because he wants to. Because now it's his joy. Because he has been changed on the inside from being a lover of money to a lover of God, and you cannot fake that. Look at the rich young ruler. You remember him, the previous chapter? He said he loved God, said he loved his neighbor, said he kept the commandments, and Jesus says, good, give it all away and let's go. And the guy would not do it because you can't fake that. When God calls us to Himself, there is change. Change always accompanies salvation. If there is no change in direction, there is no salvation. Maybe it's sudden like Zacchaeus. Maybe in your life it was more of a gradual thing. But the point is, it's there. It's always there. When we have an encounter with Jesus, there is change that takes place. And in Zacchaeus' case, it is radical. Now, does Jesus require this of him? Did Jesus say to him, Zacchaeus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to pay back four times, you have to give half of it? No, we don't have any evidence of that. But we have a man who is so excited in his newfound conversion that he is willing to part with all of it so that he might walk with Christ. The gospel is not you must believe in Jesus and give 50% to the poor and give four times of you know, restitution of everything. It's not that. But it does require denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Him. And if He calls you to do those things, you do them. And the account ends with Jesus declaring true salvation. Verse 9, He says, Today salvation has come to this house since He also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. <clears throat> that is a sermon in itself right there. But just wrapping up, the Bible comes to us in various forms. It describes for us theology. And yet it also portrays those things for us. What do concepts like election 
and regeneration and repentance and faith and conversion look like? How can we better understand them? We read through the book. We are not only told of them, we are shown them. And we are shown them in the life of this man, Zacchaeus. Let us pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You, O God, that You, the great Physician, have not come for the healthy but for the sick. And that those who recognize that they need a physician will call upon Him. O Lord, if there are any who recognize, Lord, that they, like Zacchaeus, are sinners, are unworthy, may they also, like Zacchaeus, receive Christ and have the joy of their salvation I pray, Lord, this Word be an encouragement to us, Lord, that salvation is of You and not of us, and that if we have Christ, we have everything. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.